Yo, Mike. What it is, yo. I'm Kylie McDaniel from Fangraphs.com, and on the other line, under federal investigation for living in his mother's basement, it's Eric Longenhagen. It's true. I'm down here. Uh, I'm waiting for my pizza rolls. So, waiting yep. for my subpoena and for my pizza rolls. Uh, so, I guess we'll do in the way of a quick update, letting the listeners know where we are. Uh, I am still in Florida. Uh, hitting instructional league, although I may have seen my last one today. It ends this week. Eric, where are you? Still in Arizona. Uh, instructional league is over for me on the 17th. Uh, fall league starts today as we're recording. Um, I still went and did instructional league this afternoon. Uh, but tonight I'll see the first uh, my first fall league game, Forrest Whitley, Taylor Trammell. Someone just sent me the lineups and stuff, so thank you for that. Just we're juggling both right now uh, for the next week or so, and then once instruction leagues are uh, are complete out here, then it'll just be fall league and uh, doing lists. Oh yeah, lists. Do I have to do those too? Yep. Ah, uh, hmm. I have to think. This Maybe over. we can talk about it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, let me see if I can wiggle out of this one. Uh, we have two full topics and then two mini topics, uh, so we'll go ahead and uh, jump into this. First one is, uh, we'll say like a playoffs general uh, omnibus topic. Um, so, any big top line thoughts? I don't know, I think things have sort of shaken out the way I would have anticipated so far. Milwaukee and Houston are kind of the teams that I think will ultimately meet in the World Series. Um, think aggressive bullpen management... And Milwaukee has been a big deal. Corbin Burns, Josh Hader, those guys have really put a bow on things. You know, uh, there's not a whole lot of even games in Coors Field haven't seemed in doubt. Yeah, I mean the Dodgers too. Like it's just sort of. I think it's just been chalk so far. I think it's interesting to think about like these teams that have lost where they're sort of headed at this point. I guess. Um, All right. Well, we've talked about this before. Uh, what's Colorado doing? Well, let's look at the the contracts right um you know yeah, the how, much, big how much league, flexibility they have that seems like everybody's number one question right now you think that the big league ready prospects who we'd see full-time next year would be like doll uh mcmahon perhaps Emil tapia gets a chance yeah yeah brendan rogers um garrett hampson so and you also have Renato going to the last year of his deal so you could either move right. your chips in for that or clear some guys out let the kids play and have like a mini rebuilding year uh, Arenado and Gerardo Parra are both. Let's see, Parra's got a twelve million dollar team option. I don't anticipate them picking that up. And you're losing Lemayhu and Carlos no. Gonzalez to free agents. Well, right. they're becoming free agents. We'll see what happens. Right. So I would say Tapia can reason can be reasonably expected to provide something close to what Cargo did as like a lefty hitting uh, outfielder. And then yeah, I guess like that's. I think. Do you think they'll be able to pay pay Arenado? Is the question. I, I mean, I would imagine they want to. That seems like the kind of guy that you kind of give the big money to, but I also think they would have done that already if it was just like, sure. do we want this guy? Sure, let's give it to him. Like, that would have happened. So it makes me yeah, think, is he looking uh, for an enormous deal, or are they thinking, like, hey, we just want to be a team where nobody makes $20 million? He's probably got an enormous deal waiting for him. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be so, – someone's really going to pay him. And, uh, you know, listening to, uh, like, Andy McPhail had a press conference uh, – sort of runs things in Philly. He sort of alluded to the, the notion that Philly, who we all sort of anticipated would spend or wants to spend this offseason on some combination of Machado and Harper, 
he sort of alluded to the notion that they could wait a year. And this is, if you're looking to fill a hole at third base, like this is a cleaner fit because Machado doesn't want to play third base, uh, even though I think that that's where I'd like him to play. And Donaldson may not fit um, their competitive cycle because he might have to settle for a one-year deal and they might be looking for a little bit of a longer-term option. Yeah, so I'd be very hesitant about like Donaldson personally. Um, That's why I, I think he might be the Mustakis guy like. where he wants you know four by twenty two and he has to settle for one for fifteen or something. Uh, and then yeah, I mean like the other things that they might be able to dress internally are are pretty minor. Um, but you know Brendan Rodgers is a huge piece. Garrett Hampson, I, I'm sort of I kind of buy into him now as like a fine everyday middle infielder of some kind. Uh, and I'm not sure ultimately which side of the bag Hampson and, and Rogers end up on, but I think those are your two middle infielders of the future. And then the pitching stuff, they've had like some issues with uh, development, but like Herman Marquez is a huge win. This is a guy who took another step forward this year. Uh, all spring long, he was trying to find you know that third pitch, and turns out that that slider is like he found it. Um, that might be better than his curveball is already. Uh, and they, they've spent on, what's the, Wade Davis's deal runs through 2020. He's making uh, $17 million a year for the next two years. Ian Desmond's going to be around until 2021. Uh, not sure what that guy's going to turn into as far as like his role goes. Would you say this seems almost like Seattle, where they seem pot committed on enough contracts that they can't really blow it up anyway, so they're just going to keep going for it? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I think that the the Blackman extension was uh, a sign that that's that that seems to be the case. I think that the most of the pitching is on is still like in the pre arb and arb years. I don't know how much they're going to get out of like Jeff Hoffman, you know, going forward who's still just twenty five. Tyler Anderson's twenty eight. All these guys are like pre arb or in their arb years. And so I I guess, so yeah, Um, I don't know. I think that, yeah, it's time. Like, I think that we're going to see them do the can to compete next year. And then if they can retain Arenado long-term, great. Uh, But I think his market's going to be absolutely huge. And I I have kind of, I doubt that they'll be able to do it. Yeah, because I I said earlier that maybe they're the team that doesn't want to pay anyone 20 million. I didn't realize Arenado, it looks like is projected for 26 million in arbitration (laughs) from one side I'm looking at. Which I, I forgot that your last year of ARB can go that high. And then Blackman is obviously making a little over 20 in his long-term deal. So yeah, it sounds like they basically decided if Blackman will take this right now, we'll, we'll take that rather than maybe ending up with him hitting the market and then we can't get Arenado and now we lost out on both. There aren't a lot of guys in the farm system that, if you're staring at the list we have on the board, that I'm just like, oh yeah, that guy is going to be, could be a central piece if they want to add Next summer, it's actually middle infield is like the spot where it's interesting because they have uh, Hampson, Story, and Rogers, and right. most teams don't have two guys and they have three. Yeah, so it would have to be it would have to be one of those guys, and then I guess it's possible. Colt Walker has really hit. You know, the power production has not been what you'd want from someone who is like a first base, third base type. Uh, Ryan Velotti, same sort of thing. Tyler Nevin, same sort of thing. So I guess there's a chance that either any any of those guys and Grant Levine can can ascend to be that guy but just looking at this list right now other than you know take your pick of the brendan rogers garrett hampson duo where there might be some redundancy i guess with with trevor story or i guess uh, the yeah. leftover one can play third base when arenado leaves so in a way they've already got the replacement right yeah and then they have mcmahon too at first base and yeah yeah i suppose that there are ways that this fits 
moving forward and they could still be competitive. It just involves them hitting on all of these guys. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It seems like there is an 80 to 90 win, most almost completely homegrown team here. But if like Freeland or Marquez, if, if those two guys go the way of like the Mets guys went, where like one of them becomes not that great and then one gets banged up a little bit, then it's like, okay, there's not a ton of margin for error here because it's not like there's a bunch of four-win hitters that like are going to pick up the slack and you got Desmond and Davis and some of these guys eating up a lot of money. All right, so then Atlanta was eliminated as well. How do you think the what do you think the the pitching staff looks like next year? Because there's just so, that's so many the big, guys. Yeah, that's the big question I've been asked the last couple of weeks in the um, in the chat. Which I get. I mean, I guess it's to be expected because they have a good farm system, and I would presumably have thoughts about them. But I get an inordinate amount of Braves questions every week. Yeah, so Marquez is leaving. I mean, he'll be, be a free agent. I would guess he probably doesn't come back. Um, because they need a spot to fill with all this extra money they have to get a hitter. And now with Camargo and Riley at third base, and then Swanson seems like he's going to be giving the shot going forward at short. Unless you go sign a big-time catcher or a big-time right fielder, you don't have a spot to fill unless you trade in Ciarte. But I think I think you're going to wait one more year until Pache takes that job, and then you can trade him and not have to necessarily replace him. So I would think, yeah, Marcakis walks um, and Suzuki leaves. So those are the two holes that they could potentially – either trade for a guy, you know, whether it's Real Muto or go sign Harper or a guy like that. And then on the pitching side, like they have like legitimately like 14 options. <laughs> like it's kind of insane yeah. how many starting pitching options there are. So it seems like Tehran is kind of getting pushed out the door that I would imagine like a rebuilding team would give a decent prospect to grab him for a reasonable price and get some durable innings. And then you keep Newcomb, Gaussman, Fultonevich. You let Anibal Sanchez walk. That gives you two spots in the rotation. I would guess Soroka... Uh, would get one of those, provided he's healthy, which it sounds like he will be. And then you have one rotation spot and a couple spots in the bullpen for like the rest of the prospect list. I mean, you've got Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson, Gohara, uh, Toussaint, Bryce Wilson, Allard, and there's you know other guys that are close. Um, but like all of those guys for sounds like one starting spot and one or two relief spots. And it looks like Max Fried is another one, and he's been sort of groomed to be in the bullpen along with Viscaino, Minter, Sabatka, Brock's leaving his free agent, Venters is leaving. Seems like Tuki is fine in a shorter stint, even though he may possibly fit in a slightly longer than that stint. So they're basically going to have four really good starters in AAA, and they could either just sit with that and do what they did this year and kind of shuttle them back and forth and in case of emergency, kind of break the glass and bring them all up. I tend to think that if they don't find the guy they want in free agency, at catcher or right field, that they'll just package a couple of them together that they feel are expendable and go grab like a Marcelo Zuna type, whether that's Real Muto or or whoever it is to you know be like sort of a bridge between the rest of you know Drew Waters or whoever else it is coming up. I don't know. What do you think? I, this is all based on no well, inside info. It's just kind of how I read it. Sure. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Um, yeah. I think the question is how much are they going to do that is just purely throwing money at some of these holes, like you said, Marcakis is a free agent and Kurt Suzuki. So like, if they wanted to exchange uh, Suzuki spot with another free agent, like Grandal is the big name uh, catcher on the free agent market. And then we know most of these outfielders, uh, Michael Brantley, Granderson, Leonis Martin, AJ Pollock is a pretty interesting short term stopgap. I don't know who's going to want to give Pollock who's been hurt a lot, a huge multi-year deal, but I think somebody. I, I think somebody's more likely to give it to him than Donaldson. Yeah, I think that's fair. But would you, if you were a team like the Braves and you were contending and needed like this sort of thing, like you know, this is a versatile, well-rounded outfielder, would you pay a premium for two years of this guy? Would you give this guy twenty million a year for two years just to sort of 
fill the gap between now and when someone internally like uh, Christian Pache is ready. Yeah, He's the that, guy you overpay. Yeah, because I, I think I'm I, I, I don't know how I'm, I'm looking at their team page trying to see how much money. So they have ninety mil. Uh, so on the page I'm looking at with you know projected ARP increases and all that kind of stuff, uh, ninety mil committed. I would guess the payroll is going to be like one twenty, one thirty. So even maybe even one forty. I don't know. I guess they made some extra money this year on the um, on the playoff run. Uh, but I, I think even Harper would be basically eating up all of that money if you want to make him the guy and then trade prospects to get Real Muto. Like you're really pushing in for the next three or four years because then Harper's contract presumably won't be fantastic, making thirty five million when he's you know thirty three or whatever. Actually, it might not be that bad. But I, yeah, I get I get the impression that uh, they'll play it a little more conservative. Like, I would guess they probably just keep all those pitchers and just send them to AAA, and instead of it being a AAA um, you know, prospect that you don't want to call up, they're on the 40-man, and so they can get brought up and down in certain spots or 26-man or you know, relief for a little bit and then bring him back down to manage his innings. So I would imagine getting a reliever or two, whether it's sort of the Brad Brock type where you kind of get him on the cheap and just plug in a, a short-term veteran or calling up the young kids or signing one Wade Davis type to kind of fill in there and then just kind of leaving the pitching where it is. And then, yeah, maybe Grandall and Pollock are the two guys where you put those two numbers together. That's about, I would guess, on an AAV basis, about what Harper would get. That's probably a better use of their money and you wouldn't get tied up into, I would guess you could get those guys for, you know, two or three years for Pollock and probably what, four for Grandall. So there wouldn't be the potential for an enormous mistake. And I also think you'd probably keep these guys more healthy if you put Pollock in a corner, you'd have a really good outfield defense, and then you had Grandall essentially like splitting time with Flowers, who's always been a guy that you don't want to give the full load to, uh, and you have the lefty-righty split. So, yeah, I would say those make sense. And I, Yeah, I think if you do those two and then maybe trade for a guy with a year or two of uh, relief control and plug him in, I think that would be like the appropriate way to make the incremental improvement to sort of take this from a pretty good team to this is now like the favorite in the division, I guess, depending on what the nationals do. Cause I guess we don't know exactly right. how that's going to play out. That's exactly what I was going to ask you is who's the favorite in this division next year. Well, and then the other interesting part, which I, I guess you probably saw in some of the Philly media is that um, I guess Rosenthal reported, but it wasn't like a direct quote that everyone other than Noel and Hoskins is available. And it sounds like the Phillies uh, know that they have some defensive shortcomings, but a bunch of chips that are sort of close to the big leagues or in the big leagues. And so they can basically, you know, go Jerry DePoto style and just like flip all these guys around and get exactly what they're looking for. And it sounds like they're open to that if they can find the spot. So, I mean, they could, I mean, presumably do what the Mariners did and just make a whole crap ton of trades. And maybe at the end of it, you end up with a really good short-term team. Uh, but yeah, the Nationals, like they've got all these guys coming off the books and, for all we know, they could be cutting payroll afterwards and just saying, go with the kids and let's let Robles and Soto and, you know, all those guys kind of take over and let's act like we're, you know, good. But we're, they're probably not like seen as a 90-win team going forward at that point if you, all those guys lock out the door and you replace them with guys that were kind of already there. Washington's so, in a similar situation uh, as Colorado is in that Anthony Rendon is a free agent two off-seasons from now. Yeah, he has had... Um, Injury issues throughout his career, like dating back to college, but boy, can he hit! So that's another one where it's just like it's it's going to be interesting to wait and see what what happens there. He's he, I'd be a little more hesitant to pay him. Like I'd be in line to pay for Arenado before Rendon just because of health. But uh, but yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in Washington too. Like they could conceivably let Bryce Harper go and still not lose anything in the outfield because they'll have a full season of Robles and Soto, who we like. I think are both excellent, excellent players. 
<laughs> and going back to the bridge um, real quick, if um, if okay. Swanson, Camargo, and Riley all play well next year, then you could have essentially your your extra outfielder instead of it being Pollock, it could just be one of those guys. But you kind of assume with three young players, like one of them will just not be very good. So you assume those three give you know fill those two spots. Yeah, I always assumed Camargo was eventually destined for like premium utility duty, but his approach is so refined that like he he does reach base enough that like if you plugged him anywhere every day like you'd be fine yeah if you're he's like that marwin gonzalez guy that i thought would be a 50 and it might take a while but it sounds like he might be a 55 and you know be a little better than that cleveland was just eliminated uh they had two of the what were they one and two or one and three on your individual player trade value list yeah so they can do whatever they want yeah so they they're gonna have to piece together an outfield next year though they lose Rajai Davis, Melky Cabrera, Lonnie Chisenhall, Michael Brantley. Uh, they're all free agents. A lot of people would say they failed to address center field in the middle of the year. I don't think there was a real avenue to addressing it. They added Leonis Martin, who's a pretty good platoon center fielder. Like he mashes righties. Go look at Leonis Martin's numbers. Like he's at least the platoon center fielder who you don't really mind playing every day because his glove is so good out there. He's under contract. Uh, his final arbitration year is like after the 2020 season. I think he'll be a free agent, or maybe it's after next year. Like he's still arb eligible, basically. Uh, but like around him, they're gonna have to do something. Like they've got Bradley Zimmer, who was hurt for most of this year. And other than that, like the upper levels of the of the system, like they added Oscar Mercado at the trade deadline. They traded uh, Jan Torres, a big Colombian right fielder, to uh, they swapped him with. St. Louis for Oscar Mercado with a deadline, so there's there is an internal option for the outfield next year in Cleveland. But beyond that, like they're gonna have to find something to to stick out there, and so that'll be interesting to see. I don't really know what um, what kind of money like this franchise is willing to commit to a single individual. Yeah, it seems like the ethos of the front office is to sort of keep it balanced and not get overextended on any one guy. And if you want to make sort of a playoff run, then like once we get to the deadline, then we can make a couple of trades and kind of prop it up. But you got to kind of get there and then you can spend some money. And they, uh, they're already committed in that sort of 130-ish area uh, from what I'm looking at. So I wouldn't imagine they have way more flexibility in there. Miller, lose Andrew Miller. And I, th- I think Cody Allen too, right? Uh, yep, you're correct. Yep, yeah. so... So that's probably why they traded for Brad Hand, so he could be like the, the stopper going forward. Right. I think this, this organization develops pitchers in such a way that they can backfill in the bullpen internally pretty effectively. Yeah, the it rotation surprise is you the, if Nick Sandlin is up next year. Yeah, the, the rotation is the strength of the team, and they have Tristan McKenzie coming. But right now, it's Bieber, Bauer, Kluber, Carrasco, Clevenger. You've got Danny Salazar as, like, you know, in injury limbo. And then you have Tristan McKenzie coming. So it's, you know, similar to the Braves. Not quite as many guys. But you've got, like, seven legitimate options that I would, I don't know, I guess by the middle of next year all those guys are available. As far as uh, exchanging prospects for big leaguers next year, I think this team is, like, very well positioned to do that. They had the best group of talent in extended spring training, in my opinion. They had the best ACL rosters uh, it is a young, athletic farm system. They've, they've stood out in the international market for for being yeah. one of the one of the clear top tier teams. So I think, yeah, I think that they've got the horses to trade for for whoever is available next summer to fill in some gaps, and maybe even do it over the uh, do it over the winter. So I, you know, 
I know that like that it's frustrating in Cleveland because they've sort of bumped up against this juggernaut in Houston at this time when like the team in general is like peaking. These last few years have have been like Lindor becoming what he has become and Jose Ramirez doing his thing. It's like they are amazing, and uh, Kluber in his prime, and like it seems like the planets should be aligning for them, and it's just Houston's just so good. Um. And they, they just beat the hell out of them. Jeff wrote a thing for today uh, as we're recording this. is just about like how badly uh, Houston just trashed Cleveland. So, and they also uh, seem to be on like in like a similar sort of window. Like if we, if we knew what every player would turn into a couple years ago, we'd be like, oh, Houston and Cleveland are going to be going at it in the playoffs the next five years in a row. Yeah, and it looks like Houston just might be. Did you see the article today in the Athletic about how the Indians players were saying like, oh yeah, we didn't we weren't prepared in the same way analytically as the Astros were. Which seems kind of insane that a player would actually know that, or that it would be bad enough that they would be able to pick up on it. Did you? So I noticed that uh, Houston's catcher, like the the game calling, was far more complex in Cleveland. Like they were using uh, multiple signs as if a runner was on second base, uh, even when the bases were empty in Cleveland, as if they were paranoid that Cleveland was somehow still able to uh, decipher their signs. If they were just going to, you know, do one for fastball, two for curveball, et cetera, et cetera, they were mixing and matching throughout the game in Cleveland, even though there was nobody on base. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Cleveland was mixing and matching uh, both home and away, just in case. So there's just like I would definitely level call of paranoia. <laughs> is yeah, it's it just you know it drives uh, like that feeling. <laughs> Uh, drives no doubt plays a part in driving Houston to be as curious and. Um, tireless as far as developing and learning and implementing uh but it also is like <laughs> it's you know it's paranoia so yeah. it's it's pretty interesting to watch that organization operate you know even though sometimes i it kind of gives me a makes me kind of queasy yeah and it's also interesting because uh, one of the things i i mean i don't know this for sure but something i suggested in that the tweet where i pointed out this athletic article is that oftentimes there is a lack of information in a clubhouse because the manager won't allow it in there where sometimes like i'm aware of teams where the manager won't let certain sort of information in the clubhouse because he thinks it'll overwhelm the players and then a couple players will go directly to the front office to ask them for stuff and go like essentially around the coaches and say, yeah, I know why he does this. Most of them can't handle that, but I need this information. Like have someone give it to me, um, which is kind of insane. And it's, it's like, I know Cleveland has the capability to do maybe not as advanced as Houston. Cause I think we agree that they're kind of at the, at the far edge. I've had some friends on progressive teams sort of talk about Houston as like, Oh yeah, they're the team that sort of does the most stuff right now or does it the best or has the most people or is the most cutting edge or however you want to say it. So I would imagine, that extends to the um, you know the advanced scouting and the and the game planning and stuff, but Cleveland would be you know in the top ten. I don't know. Depends on like what department you're looking at. They'd probably be somewhere from five to ten. So it's not like they can't produce the things to where Clevenger and Alex Bregman have a similar review of their own team. So it made me think someone's sort of tying a hand behind their back. And I know Francona is at least not as progressive as Hinch. It wouldn't shock me if he was part of the reason why there wasn't as much information there, and maybe something they have to address and. It also has been something that fans, I don't think, has qu- have quite gotten some progressive teams, or not even progressive, but some teams, typically more progressive, will get change managers after the team makes the playoffs and seemingly plays pretty well 
because the um, if you look past you know all the guys that you know the guy we have and the guy that we would hire are all pretty good with players. They've all been around for a while. They have the respect. They're pretty good tacticians. You know they can make a lineup. But if one of these guys is not going to let information in the clubhouse and the other one will, that's enough to make a change. And I think that's why you see especially progressive teams seem a little more aggressive changing managers, especially if it's a newly progressive regime from a place that used to be a little more conservative, that they need to uh, update what's going on so that they feel like they're, you know, their thoughts are essentially getting into the clubhouse without a guy in a suit walking down there and telling Bregman how to swing or whatever it is. Do you have any strong feelings about who you think will meet in the World Series? Uh, not really, but I feel like we're supposed to have very assertive picks. So if you want to talk about yours, I'll, uh, I'll click around fangrass.com and see if I can come up with a very strong feeling. Sure. I have Milwaukee and Houston. Um, I just think on the NL side, I think Houston is just so talented and that, that, that just so much so that they're just going to overwhelm whoever they meet in the ALCS, whether it's New York or Boston, I don't particularly care. Yeah. Give me, um, give me Houston and the Dodgers. And then I'll take Milwaukee just because I, I think that bullpen is a huge like that's it's such a huge advantage over what LA runs out there. Uh, like just Kenley Jansen has been very volatile. Yeah, and I also think the Dodgers have a, a clearly better rotation. And but I guess you wonder sure. in the playoffs, like how how much does the the guy that averages five innings a game and the, or the group of guys that average you know four innings a game or that could be flipped in any one game. Which one of them matters more, especially if you know Kershaw can go once or twice in a series and Hader can go five times? Yeah, I, I would imagine yeah, those two teams are evenly matched enough that it probably comes down to sort of breaks and who happens to hit more home runs, basically. But our other main topic is about the uh, the Mesa brothers, and I guess you most recently saw our joint bylined article about the Mesa workout that will probably go out before this podcast. So, uh, how would you sort of? say that what happened at that workout and how they're seen by the industry compares to how we had talked about them previously. Yeah, and I guess the article will probably be up before this. So go check out the article about the uh, the Cubans working out in Miami. It's just an interesting situation. Uh, anytime anytime uh, that there's a late calendar addition to the international market, it's interesting because the pool of teams that still have money to spend is so limited. The three players that we have here coming out of Cuba are the two Victor Mesa brothers. Uh, Victor Victor, the older one, who's just about big league ready. Uh, it's sort of like a glove first center field profile with contact. Maybe not a lot of power unless there's like an adjustment to the swing. Albert Almora is the like the comp that gets thrown around and is that type of player. Uh, which if you're like, oh, that's not really all that exciting. It's like, that's correct. <laughs> um, the younger brother, Victor Mason Jr., is more fine. It's not a multi-million dollar type of talent. Like, we may never uh, write about this guy if he didn't have a famous name. Right. Um, and then Sandy Gaston, no one throws like Gaston. No one, etc., uh, <laughs> etc. Et I'm kind of amazed you've never made that joke with me before. Oh, I'm pretty sure I've made it in a chat. Oh, okay. He's just a hard-throwing uh, righty without a whole lot of physical projection. So it's it's just that sort of Latin American arm uh, typically gets between 1 and 2 million uh, mid-90s with a breaking ball. There's not a whole lot of physical projection, so he's got to sort of retain that velocity. And there's not really a way for us to know whether or not he's going to uh, until we see that he can maintain it for the course of an entire summer. Uh, you know, throwing 98 in workouts is one thing and like doing it for 115, 120 innings uh, over the course of a minor league season 
is entirely different. These are like the three guys. There are obviously issues in Mexico, like a moratorium on signing Mexican players and stuff. Uh, and there's always the possibility that players from Cuba will still defect. But other than these three guys, there's not really uh, any other uh, obvious names where this money and there is quite a bit of it still left there are like a half dozen teams who still have like three million or so of their international pools that they can spend and outside of these three guys there's not a whole lot of obvious places where they're going to stick it so i've been talking to people the last couple days weeks uh, like trying to figure out if there are any players in mexico who are eligible to sign and who have deals but just can't put pen to paper yet and it just kind of sounds like teams might go spread some money around asia uh, if they lose out on these three big fish who worked out uh, in Marlins Park, which you which you went down to Miami for, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I happen to be relatively close to Miami, so I went there uh, under the assumption that I could go. And then the night before, like at 10 o'clock, I'm in my hotel watching a game. I had just gotten to Miami, and I was notified, oh, yeah, you can't go. <laughs> It's like, oh, I'm glad I didn't like spend a bunch of money getting here, but I am here. So yeah, luckily, uh, some scouts took some pity on me and told me what they saw. It's interesting because there have been times when just here in Arizona, like there are international players, some of them Cuban, uh, who are here for a workout. Whether you know, it's not typically at a stadium. Like they don't typically do this stuff at a big league stadium. Uh, it's almost always like the Dominican at a complex. Right. It's typically in the in the DR, but here in Arizona, like. At a spring training stadium or a backfield, like I've just walked into those without anybody even asking who I am. And there was like a huge, there was like a memo sent out for this event specifically stating that like media is not allowed. Why do we think that is? That's a good question. I know you have a theory. <laughs> it seems like MLB is being a little, I mean, it's, I know uh, Kim Ng used to sort of be the international czar, you know, whatever the actual title was for that, and it is now not her anymore. So there's a bit of a change, and I know the general MO of MLB was sort of to make rules that seem to be pushing toward players can't see, teams can't see players until January of the year they can sign. Let's try to limit how much contact they can have with the players, therefore there can't be early deals. And now it seems like they've walked away from that course of... Uh, sort of negotiation and now it's more let's not fight teams on having early deals let's make sure the trainers are playing ball with MLB they're not shooting up their kids with steroids and let's have more games and we'll just you know we'll let them have early deals but let's let's avoid the sort of steroids in the package deals which I think is a more practical answer but also there hasn't been a ton of Cuban workouts under this regime because I don't know exactly when it happened but we're obviously in it now so they could just be a little more interested in keeping these things small, especially when they're in a big league stadium. But what do you think? So I just think in general that given what – and if people are listening to this and haven't read the Sports Illustrated story about uh, the Department of Justice investigating Major League Baseball's activities in Latin America, uh, you should go avail yourself of that article uh, right now. MLB has potentially like huge problems with like the FBI breathing down their their necks about some of the stuff that individuals uh, within the game, scouts, executives, stuff that they've been doing in Latin America, whether it's like taking kickbacks uh, or yeah, there's not a ton, uh, there's not a ton of details, but you can sort of read between the lines of what is sort of right. alleged or what they might have but aren't telling SI transporting players in ways that is technically human trafficking. Uh, so there are like huge issues. And so I just think that 
MLB wants to control all this stuff now as much as possible. And so like having a firm grasp on even like this, just individual workout and making sure that there's no, there's no access that they can't control. Uh, and that includes media. Like they can't like realistically, if, if you or I end up in that ballpark, like who know, like we're going to be taking video and we might bug someone who's got the track man on because it was on. And uh, yeah, it was sent, it was sent to teams. Teams all have the track man from that event. Yeah, you know we're gonna poke around and and use whatever wiggle wiggle room we can. I think part of the other reason that uh, they wanted such control over this particular event was uh, Victor Mesa is represented by Barry Praver. If you don't know Barry Praver's name, uh, he is. If do you remember Bart Hernandez's name? Uh, Bart Hernandez is the guy who. He was convicted, right? Um, I believe. Yeah, smuggling. I'm doing it right now to see exactly what the um, yeah. I, I'm yeah, seeing indicted and in arrested. Jail. So <laughs> yeah, certainly got close. So yeah, so Bart Hernandez is like an agent and trainer who was smuggling Cuban ball players into the United States, and he worked for the agency he worked for is like Barry Praver's agency. So anything that this agency does is probably you know, especially as it relates to Cuban ball players, it has to be done above board now, like. MLB kind of has to make sure that their shop is clean. And so anything that, you know, that this agency is doing as far as bringing players to the United States for workouts or whatever, like MLB probably wants to control it for this reason, because this agency has had this issue before. So uh, this was my assumption. No one has told this to me. This is just me sort of connecting these logical dots and sort of speculating in this way. It just makes sense that uh, like if I were running this part of major league baseball that I'd want to make sure that there, there weren't any international laws being violated uh, when this guy is running a 60 yard dash somewhere that he shouldn't be or something like that. Like it seems kind of ridiculous, but at the same time, like this is what has happened Two two additional things to add to that. Uh, one, there were memos sent when I worked for a team that would outline what human trafficking is. Like for instance, let me give you a scenario, Eric, you tell me if you think this is a international federal crime. I'm in a hotel lobby in the Dominican. The Cuban national team is staying there. A Cuban player walks over to me and says, hi, I know you work for the such and such team. Uh, How good of a player do you think I am? And if you say, oh, well, I think, uh, I don't know, if uh, you were, you know, available in America, you know, sometime in the future, whatever, uh, you might be worth $5 million. Would that be (laughs) a crime? My logic says no, but I somehow think that that's probably why you're teeing it up <laughs> again i'm not a lawyer but it was explained as the way i understood these memos that that is a crime because you are telling someone who is not is like sort of embargoed from working in america here's how much money you would make if you worked in america and enticing them to do something that's technically illegal at the moment that is how it was explained to me so like the teams are all aware of this and to be very careful around it and the agents i don't think are always <laughs> as careful because at some point like if you've read the yasiel puig stories it's like at some point he gets taken out of cuba on a boat by drug dealers or people connected to drug dealers and then they hold him as though he is a hostage until someone that will eventually get him to an agent if not the agent himself pays them to release this human into his custody and now this guy sort of owns yasiel puig until he can get paid by the team, and then he gets his cut from Yasuo Puig. So it's like, you can see how that would be rife with potential crimes if what I described is a crime, and that's what's happened multiple times. Like, there's a lot of, like, gray area there. Or I guess it wouldn't be gray area, but there's a lot of area there to commit a crime. Right, and also, Puig is one thing, and then 14, 15, 16-year-old kids are like, 
Like there, there's a lot of, a lot of this is just children are being taken advantage of. Yeah. Most of the, I mean, there's been like a half dozen or so guys the last, I don't know, five years where we knew who they were before they got here. Uh, you know, Moncada, Luis Robert, the Mesas, Guriels, where we knew, oh, these guys are going to get money before they got here. Most of the guys that have gotten paid like millions of dollars. We didn't really know anything about them when they showed up. Like Yadier Alvarez, I watched his first workout where he eventually got $16 million with a $16 million penalty, so $32 million player. I had no idea who it was when I showed up to the field that day to see Hector Oliveira and then Alvarez through. And that's typically most of the guys that get some money. Like, I know the Padres signed, what, like six of them. We didn't really know who any of those guys were when they were, until they, like, worked out and we kind of heard. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of kids that basically don't know if they're going to make any money. And I would say that also when I was down there seeing all these workouts pretty often, there would be Cuban guys that are just at every workout. Like, there's, like, a 25-year-old guy that would be at workouts for 15-year-old players just because he's been in the Dominican for three years and nobody wants to sign him, and he's just sort of desperate, and some agent has some cut of him and wants him to sign. And so, you know, there's a couple dozen of these players that just never end up signing and just kind of, like, kick around the Dominican and, you know, never really get paid. And so you can imagine there's probably some 15- and 16-year-olds where that happens too. But obviously the good ones are the ones you hear about. So then my question is, how much of this stuff does an international draft you know, let's just ignore the difficulty of its configuration. You know, let's just assume that we figure out a way to do it. How much of this stuff does that, does a draft expunge from this process? From strictly the Cuban process? Just from, from a general, like, uh, illegal activity, unscrupulous behavior as far as MLB's rules are concerned, as far as, like, federal and international laws are concerned. Well, that, How much what, does a draft get rid of in that regard? Yeah, the, the embargo with Cuba was a thing that seemed like it was on the road to being taken away. Because obviously all of this stuff is because Americans can't fly to Cuba and scout a player and say, hey, your team should post you and then we'll sign you. Like essentially how the Asian players are handled. That's why all of this is happening. Uh, it's you know, a governmental thing. And it looked like it might have gone undone. And there were a bunch of scouts that I talked to that have been trying to sign these players since you know going back to El Duque. Um, and Levon Hernandez and Jose Contreras and that whole group that said, oh, the first time I can make a flight down there uh, and like bring a radar gun and go watch a team and all that kind of stuff, I'm on the first flight. Like now you can go, but if you show up to a stadium with a radar gun as a white guy, like there's going to be some problems because <laughs> there's not a way for them to get paid with you doing that. So it basically seems like you're trying to steal, you know, they, I guess they could assume you're a human trafficker at some point. So while, yeah, you can technically vacation there, you can't really scout baseball players. I think it depends. So one iteration of the international draft sort of conversations were if all of the players had to be 18 to sign. And the issue with that was, all right, I can see why you'd want to do that because then they're on even footing with domestic high school players. The problem would be, uh, well, one, you have a bunch of scouts that tip probably lean toward domestic scouts who are going down to see international players. And the international players are going to get pushed down the board some just because they're not going to speak the same language. They're not going to really have a bunch of connections to know the makeup, all that sort of thing. And then the other issue is that the players in the Dominican can't like turn down money and say, oh, you guys are only offering 500K. I want 2000000 million. I'm going to go to Vanderbilt. Like They don't have that, whereas the domestic kids do. So putting them in the same group doesn't make any sense. But keeping them separate, if you still make it 18, you then have the system where these Buscones sort of scoop these kids up around 12 years old and are, you know, once a kid shows some real pro potential, they're sort of fed and trained and all these sorts of things to become a player to then sign at 16, but maybe even have a deal at 14 or 15. So it could just be a couple years of work. If you then make it 18, maybe the kids are a little less motivated. Maybe the Buscones are a little less motivated. Does MLB start scooping up 12-year-olds and like 
housing them and like essentially like boarding them like you know um how the big european teams have like academies with a bunch of 12 year old kids running around or i guess even younger than that is mlb gonna start doing that because you you thought they might start doing that when they were pushing for you don't know who the players are until their january sort of plan but they've now sort of walked away from that so then if you try to do international draft but keep everyone at age 16 then it becomes like well if you're gonna hard slot all the bonuses and limit the financial upside of the kids and thus the buscones Maybe they're still 16, maybe the still stuff, same stuff still happens, but do the you know lower down or mid-range players, are they sort of less motivated? And in the Dominican, I think they'll stay motivated because it's essentially a third-world country without a lot of sort of financial ways to get out for kids that don't have access to education. But in other countries in Latin America, traditionally Venezuela was one that was a little more well-off. It's obviously now in a terrible situation uh, economically, but you could have sort of more problems trying to implement that. And eventually you're getting to the point where, well, if we're just like drafting them and paying them the same amount of money and they're still 16, then what is a draft really changing? You're just like making sure the Orioles have the number one pick and they have to pick a guy there rather than having the most money and dealing with it the way they want to, which I think most teams would like to be able to disperse their money the way they want to rather than having to trade draft picks around. Yeah, it's it would definitely be a fight between ownership and MLB, which I think would like a draft. Because it is a way to fix the amount of money that is being poured out into the market. And teams like personnel would despise it because of exactly what you described. Like it just creates less room for creativity, flexibility, and the freedom to acquire the players you want. This battle, which was, you know, formerly the owners uh, against the players' union and the scouts, essentially. Uh, as far as what they wanted to happen for various reasons, now suddenly, like, the U.S. government is kind of involved in how things are going to shake out. So it's going to be very fascinating to see what happens with, like, the labor structure of our sport in general over the next five to ten years. Because there's there's going to be a huge CBA negotiation. It's going to be very toxic. Uh, and then when we come out the other end of it, teams are going to figure out where the loopholes are and then exploit those, and then the players' union is going to have to fight to uh, fill those holes again shortly after this new CBA. So I think we're in for like a long, hard fight. And these two groups have proven that they are not very good at understanding how the dynamic player markets will adjust to certain rules. Like it seems like every time there's like reasonably not sweeping, but like a reasonable amount of change, there's always some unintended consequence. Like right now in the draft, it seems like. We can't seem to figure out how to make every player take a physical before the draft so that we can avoid, you know, Carter Stewart, Brady Aiken, all these different situations that seem to crop up. And then they thought they fixed it by mandating that all the players in a certain ranking as deemed by MLB have to take a physical. And uh, we saw the list. Over half the players turned down the physical. (laughs) Or no, it it was the half of the pitchers. I think it was the top 50 pitchers had to submit to MLB's MRI program, and the sort of carrot they put in front of them is, once you do this, uh, then everyone will have seen your th- your MRI, and so when they draft you, they're basically signing off on it. So it'll like sort of guarantee you some level of bonus, and there won't be a dispute. Uh, but then just half the guys, for reasons I think we talked about in draft time, it's like, well, they make them do it on a weird schedule. What if my guy's never been hurt before? I'm not going to make him take an MRI, which there was one first-round pick where that was the case, where the guy said, this guy's never been sore. I'm not taking an MRI. So now he sort of loses those protections, or it's a doctor they don't like, or a kind of MRI they don't like. We like we heard all of these different objections from agents, and so it's like they can't even make these kids put their arms in a machine. 
<laughs> to get them to, you know, take right. physicals and avoid these problems that they've known is an issue for like five years. So like, why would they be able to figure out like a huge, uh, you know, international crime syndicate that's basically operating inside of, you know, international player signings? Like, I don't think they're going to figure that out in the short term. So in a way, I'm glad the FBI is around in the way that they're also around with the NCAA to be like, okay, well, at least they can come down with some sort of impartial objective thoughts and like set some ground rules. And then maybe we can eventually end up with a good system out of this but i would imagine given what the owners want it's never going to include like paying these kids or the amateur uh domestic kids like close to what they're actually worth because it seems like nobody wants to represent them in any way uh okay so the kyler murray stuff i sent you that's topic three kyler murray (laughs) yeah so i sent you a link to uh an espn article that is like a back and forth uh, sort of conversation between NFL doc, or ESPN.com's NFL draft uh, analysts, Mel Kuyper Jr. Um, Which in this who's, in this podcast, whose right, hair I have the, usurped. Yeah, I was going to say you're greatest, clearly the Mel Kuyper Jr. in this situation for uh, best draft uh, covering hair. Uh, no offense, Mel. Like you held the you were king of the hill for a long, long time, brother. But it's over. <laughs> I found this tweet. One of Kuyper's tweets came through my Twitter timeline on. Uh, like, I don't know, like Saturday or something, and it's just said, Kyler Murray is one of the best dual-threat quarterbacks I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> and what was the buzz on so, him coming into the year? This is the, re- this is the thing that's confusing me. Right, so this is why I ultimately sent you this link and said, like, this has to be a topic, because around uh, the time when we were debating about, like, what, what Kyler Murray was going to do uh, before the baseball draft in June, uh, I wrote a piece where I tried to do some sort of financial analysis to try to determine if there was a clear decision for Kyler to make like, uh, financially, is he going to go at a place in one draft or another where the money he's going to get up front is so obviously much more than the other sport that like he has a clear decision that he, uh, should have to make. And in doing this, I contacted a bunch of NFL draft writers. Uh, I talked to like Bill Barnwell and, uh, one of the things that I did was email uh, ESPN, and I did not speak with Kuiper or uh, Norm McShay, but uh, Chris Sproul, who does like editorial stuff for ESPN on like the NFL page, and he's heavily involved with their draft content. Essentially, at the time, I was told, "Why are you asking this question? <laughs> this guy hasn't played. It doesn't seem like he's very good." And s- essentially, like. The answer I received was somewhere between we really don't know to we don't think he's good. Like it was somewhere in that continuum. Well, because like in Um, August, it wasn't even clear he was going to start. So it's not like people are anointing this guy, even though he was the number one recruit in the country way back when. Right. And so here's here's my question. So in this ESPN article, at one point, uh, McShay says, and they're trying to gauge where they think Kyler might go in the NFL draft. And essentially they say somewhere, uh, Kuiper essentially says round three. And then McShay says this again, he has just made eight. He's made just eight career starts, but my best early guess is there's no way that this type of natural talent gets out of round two. And so my question is, why is it not obvious that Kyler Murray has this kind of physical talent, even if he's not the starting quarterback at Oklahoma last year and Baker Mayfield is, how is it not so – if this guy is that talented, even at 5'10 or whatever he is that you don't think he's going to get out of round two or that he's going to go in round three, why is, why is it a question? Like why is the fact that I was asking about his 
NFL draft prospects this like ethereal thing, unknowable because he hasn't played. And we're like, ranking I assume four, that we're ranking fourteen year old high school players, and they can't rank this guy. <laughs> right. So like, where is the NF? Where's NFL talent evaluation essentially? Right. Like, I understand the the, the need for data driven stuff, and I know that like decision making, especially at quarterback, is a is a huge driver. And you can't really know that stuff until this guy lines up against Big 12 defenses every week. And you'd like to have statistical performance on paper. And there's a correlation between the number of starts that a quarterback makes throughout his college career and his success in the NFL. Like, there's a strong correlation there. Hashtag football outsiders. But, like, if you went to an Oklahoma University practice and watched this guy play football... Is the speed not apparent? Is the arm strength and accuracy not apparent? Like, isn't there, isn't there some value and necessity in eyeball evaluation for guys like this, like where it's clear that this guy is not going to play because Baker Mayfield is the man, and so this guy needs to be evaluated in other means, and shouldn't that sort of be like, are there no, if we see a 17-year-old high school lefty throwing 95 with a plus curveball, we know even if he's 16, that in two years, if he's not hurt, that guy's going to go in the middle of the first round at least. Like, for sure. And so why can't you watch Kyler Murray take snaps throughout the week for OU, like watching practice, and know, holy shit, this guy is so talented that even given his size and his limitations, he's probably a second or third round prospect. Like, it doesn't seem, that to me seems so fundamentally uh, ne- like necessary part of this whole process. Like no NFL team should be blindsided by this stuff. They shouldn't have known coming into the season that this guy was physically capable of it. And so too then should people who cover the draft. So either there, there's a hole somewhere either in the NFL's player evaluation process, which by the way, if you're listening to this and you run an NFL team, feel free to give me a call and like Kylie and I will uh, give consultation on how you can fill these holes. Because it's really not that hard, and then and also we both know whole, football. We could probably do some scouting for you. If the hey, I have I have this whole idea about tennis players that people think is crazy, and about how like tennis players on the fringe of being like guys who are like not quite good enough to play professional tennis uh, have some skills in place already to play professional baseball. Like I think this is an interesting fringe place to look for baseball prospects, but like we can talk about that on another show. But anyway, like. This just frustrates me. You know what I mean? Because at some point, you know, in the last six months, this guy went from someone who nobody believed in to hold on. I want to quote it again. He, he One was, of the he best was like a punchline. college quarterbacks I've ever seen. He was a punchline. He would be like, "Oh, this guy was the number one recruit, and he already transferred, and he hasn't really played yet, and he just waited behind Baker Mayfield to try to get plugged into that offense and turn himself into a star." And then half of a season later, it's like, oh, never mind. This guy's better than all the other guys we've been like losing our minds about recently. Just a quick check-in on another two-sport guy, Brandon McElwain uh, at Cal, who was a uh, Philly-area outfielder with like power, speed. He was a two-sport guy who was going to South Carolina to play quarterback. Uh, didn't work out there. He transferred to Cal. He's like finally getting reps in a quarterback timeshare at Cal. Uh, he's playing really well as, uh, as well. He's leading the team in rushing. Uh, he's got like, um, he's, I think he's in a little interception, uh, prone. uh, follow Teddy Cahill from baseball America on Twitter. Teddy tweets out McIlwain's football performance, uh, at the end of every Cal game every week. And, uh, so this guy's at least seeing like playing time in football. I don't know if he's going to play baseball or not. 
next year for Cal. He's I hope supposed so. to, but who knows? Yeah, I hope so. Mac, uh, Mac, if you're listening, uh, play baseball. <laughs> you're fun to watch. Play baseball. Yeah, and I would say <laughs> the other frustrating part of this Murray thing is, so one, it's not like this guy had no tape. Like, he was the most celebrated high school quarterback coming out of Texas in a long time, was the number one recruit in the country, even though those sort of lean toward NFL-type quarterbacks, and this guy's 5'10", and his style, may, you know, it's sort of, you know, Russell Wilson-ish, but it's not like there's, like, 15 guys in the league like him, like there is, like, Matthew Stafford was the number one QB in the country at one point, and he then went number one in the draft, and is, you know, sort of like half the quarterbacks in the league at some point. Um, this guy's unusual and was still ranked first from a thing that's sort of filtering for professional-type talents. So everybody knew how good this guy was. There's, like, you know, YouTube stuff of him everywhere of, you know, him running past a bunch of D1 players on a field. So it's not like you have no idea what he can do. And he also had played a handful of games before this year. So you had seen, like, his arm strength and, you know, that kind of thing. And I get that we will, you know, say if we were to watch Victor Mesa, Victor, Victor Mesa in a workout and say, oh, his BP's this, his arm strength is this, and his speed is that. But because he didn't play in a game, we don't know how good he can hit. We've heard he can hit, but we don't know. We don't have a hot time running to first, so we don't know how much functional speed there is. We don't know how good of a defender he is. Like, it's an incomplete evaluation. And so I get that, like, watching him in practice or uh, watching him in, like, a workout scenario or even against, like, you know, high school competition where essentially everyone on the field is worse than him in every game he's ever played in his life, you can't do quite as much. That said, if that's all we saw at Victor Victor Mesa, we could rank him pretty confidently on these areas and be, you know, within a reasonable margin of error of where he'll be. And if you were to tell us he's going to go 0 for 15, his next 15 at-bats against guys throwing 95, we then could probably, again, put him where he belongs without seeing the tape. So why do NFL evaluators have to see all of this tape and, like, have to see a bunch of games against competition when he is maybe, you know, one of the players we know the most about as the public that hadn't really played in very many games? And you obviously can very easily know how much arm strength he has. Now, let me ask you this, Eric. So I've been sort of casually watching Oklahoma games this year. Like, I always watch the highlights. I'm kind of curious how Murray does because, obviously, Scott Boris said Mm -hmm. he's going to play football this year and then he's never going to play football again, which I was like, well, if he does what Baker Mayfield does and is guaranteed $30 million as the number one pick in the draft, then I would guess that's not what's going to happen. But I know that's what agents are supposed to do. Just watching him running around and having the article you wrote in the back of my mind of like, oh, he's like, you know, a late round guy unless he goes nuts and wins the Heisman or something. And then just sort of watching highlights and seeing him run around and throw the ball. I'm like, well, I mean, obviously he doesn't have the track record of Lamar Jackson who won a Heisman trophy, but sure seems like a, you know, a smaller but comparable sort of athlete, arm strength, performance, offense kind of guy. And that guy went in the first round. So, you know, peel off a little bit because you don't have a track record and put him in the second round. Like, I kind of landed on second or third round without hearing what these guys said. Not to say I'm a genius, but just watching the guy run around, you're like, oh, there's not a lot of guys in the NFL that could do this. And he, you know, hasn't really played a whole lot and is already doing this. What what was your sort of shorthand for just sort of watching highlights of where you thought he would fit? Uh, I'm pretty sure I had him in round three. Um, hold on, I'm pulling up the article right now. And the reason think, I think I, I would lean towards like second to third as opposed to the third, uh, like I think Kuiper did, is because now you can see that like Lamar Jackson, when he's a backup and you're trying to teach him, you know, an NFL offense and how to read defenses and all that, you can use him like pretty often while that's happening too. It's not like he's just some, you know, some Josh Allen type where he's got tons of tools, but he basically sits on the bench until he's ready, which probably is what should be happening in Buffalo. But basically this is turning into a football podcast. And you guys are gonna have to get with it. We're going to make fun of football scouts, but then we're going to talk about how we should be football scouts. 
I I have him somewhere around three or four is where I pegged him in the article I wrote in April. Um, just triangulating based on where uh, Russell Wilson went. I kind of had Lamar Jackson as like the high end of like this is what it looks like when people buy into this style of play on a quarterback. Um, Russ is like about Murray's size height wise, but is but is thicker. And also, he um, had like a long track record, but that was before the NFL really right. considered short quarterbacks. And now the six footer just went one one. So now they're obviously thinking about them a little bit more. But then the list, you know, the list of guys the small to play quarterback successfully is is short. Uh, appropriately, Drew Brees, Case Keenum was undrafted, and is you know you could debate about whether or not he's a hit or miss. Like for some for an undrafted uh, free agent, I think that's a hit. Breakfast cereal um, magnate Doug Flutie. Yeah, Flutie is another like corner case. But now Brees so like, has yeah, the most yards happen, right? in NFL like, history, so it's, I mean, it might only be a handful of cases, but between those three, it's like, well, they've all been pretty good. There's not like a, I mean, I don't, there's, I imagine there's got to be some 5'11 guys that flamed out that we never heard about that were, you know, drafted lowly, but it sounds like if you're like a top three or four round guy that's this height, you're like, it sounds like a, I mean, this almost sounds like my, my Black Swan college pitcher thing. Like, oh, if you're not what people are looking for, but they still draft you high, you're probably really good and probably better than what your draft position suggests. I'd be looking for the next Matt Castle if I were an NFL like amateur scouting director. Like I'd definitely be combing backup quarterbacks uh, at big schools behind like s- superstar QB ones. See, I would do that yeah. with running backs because you can't tell me that the third best running back at Alabama at any given year isn't going to be better than almost all of the yeah. guys in the country. That's what speed score. That's what the speed score is for. Like at one that's- point, I think it was. I think there was one season. There was a tweet about this after um, Kenyon Drake had his crazy year, and it was the running the four running backs at Alabama during one season before Kamara transferred was Kamara, Bo Scarborough, Derrick Henry, and T.J. Yeldon. <laughs> it was like how how good can you be at recruiting if you were able to convince all four of those guys to come? When at one point the fourth one knew the other three were there, and he was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. Let's see what happens. It's like the Brandon Jacobs, Cadillac Williams, Ronnie Brown triangle yeah. at Auburn that Brandon Jacobs was like pushed out of and then you could argue he had the best uh nfl career yeah there's i I guess there hasn't been a ton of baseball versions of that although no one's avoiding a school because they have too many players well i'll take that back i had heard that justice sheffield was more likely to sign out of high school because vanderbilt had so much pitching he didn't think he was going to play very much his first year um but doesn't have quite as much um i guess rice had those three pitchers there's been some examples i guess of colleges being super loaded but the yeah, when you look at those, there's something enticing to, I guess, both of us about the position groups at huge college football programs when they're so deep that there's guys that can't even get on the field that are going to be, you know, one of the top 40 yeah. players in the world at doing this. And, and they can't it's even It's the pitching right. staff at Florida. Yeah, they, yeah, I guess you, you got to pick the right year. But, I mean, there was what, right. like probably six first round picks in like a three year span there? Just guys like Dane Dunning falling through the weekend rotation cracks and Michael Byrne and. And guys like like it's pretty the length the list of guys there who are interesting pitching prospects who just didn't have you know if Michael Byrne was was at ASU he would have been the Friday night guy last year yeah and I'm, if I'm not mistaken I don't have it in front of me but I've got to think Dunning started like maybe ten games on a weekend his whole time in Florida and he basically has been a top 100 prospect almost from the moment he signed a pro contract and went in the first round which you know obviously some teams go or some schools go 15 years without having like a first round pick as a pitcher and they had so many they couldn't find a weekend spot for this guy consistently. There was one uh, situation like that at USC, too, with the linebackers when it was, like, Cushing and Ma Luga and one other guy and, like, a fourth guy. Oh, it was Clay Matthews, Clay right? Matthews, yeah. Uh, and then, like, one other guy who was also, like, a third-round pick who, like, never saw the field. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I, th- I think I, I, like I was. You didn't work out. It seems like uh, just from sort of what I follow of college football that it seems like if you take sort of what is it, Clemson, uh, Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, maybe Oklahoma. Like those four or five programs seem so much better than everybody else that they'll lose five first round picks and then a bunch of guys you've never heard of fill in and they're all like first round picks too. <laughs> like I, I mean, my whole family's Alabama fans, so I watch them pretty closely. And they had one of their top tackles go out in either the semifinal or the national championship game. And the announcers are like, "Oh no, they." I mean, this guy's played every snap the entire season, and now he went out in the middle of the biggest game of the year, and they bring in this guy that was a true freshman that had never played before, and he was facing a first-round pick and basically just threw him on his ass like the first play, and they go, oh, yeah, this guy was the number one tackle in the country last year, so he also may be pretty good, and he's basically played every snap <laughs> since that moment. I was like, yeah, they don't always work out that way, but it is nice when you have a, like the best tackle in the country just like sitting there waiting for somebody to get it hurt. So, yeah, we love data here, um, but this this – situation seems to be one where people are uh over reliant upon it yeah it makes me wonder if the nfl teams had him pegged as a second or third round pick and of like maybe or, or you know if they basically had it done a little better than the the online analyst did because obviously the the analysts seem i would imagine they would like having the backstop of performance to go off of and i would imagine the NFL right and also like a little more confident you, yeah it's not if you're uh living in bristol connecticut like not you don't have a, a scouting staff to like go sit and watch OU practice for three weeks of that person's year. You know what I mean? Like you you're entirely reliant upon like you have lim- limitations. All right, it's time for me to go see Forrest Whitley. For Eric Longenhagen, I'm Kyla McDaniel, and this has been the Untitled McDonald Project. No one throws like Gaston. No one, uh... <laughs>